So it can be found, it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and it's verses um, 4 to 26, and a little bit after that, too, up to 42. But um, it can be found on page 1066, I believe. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given it to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, please speak to us now by your word, through your spirit, and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are. Please keep page 1066 open. I might get something wrong, and you want to be sure. Jesus and the Samaritan woman, a desperate outcast, or truth and reconciliation with ritual defilement. The verse is 9. Jews and Samaritans do not associate with each other. The translation might be more literally, Jews and Samaritans share nothing. It's life. Do you, do you think life is a group hug, or do you think it's a scrum down? Which is it? <laughs> well, on Tuesday in home group, somebody said, my daughter's thinking of going to Rwanda. Rwanda, the forest gorillas. Wonderful, God's creation. Hootsie, no, Hutu Tutsi genocide in the same place. And we see it, don't we? Boko Haram, Daesh, ISIS, Taliban, Palestinians, and Israelis. This desperate hostility, hatred, and it's inherited, experienced, and it's taught, and it's terminal. We really don't get on. And man tries to make peace. Sometimes we take land for peace. Sometimes we take lives for peace. Sometimes we even give land for peace. Israel gave Gaza, but it didn't bring peace. In South Africa, there was truth and reconciliation. And we're not, it hasn't quite resulted in peace between people yet. That's a very wise American, I've mentioned this before, so don't be upset, Des. A very wise American, Tom Lehrer, said, I know there are people in this world who do not love one another. And I hate people like that. <laughs> How do you eat an elephant? That's the size of this problem of reconciliation between people, isn't it? The Old Testament vision of the kingdom of God the coming of the Messiah in uh, Isaiah 11 and 65 is about reconciliation. It has the wolf lying down with the lamb, no, wrong. It has the wolf and the lamb feeding together, the leopard and the lamb lying down together, the bear feeding with the cow, carnivore and vegetarian, together, hunter and prey. How? The lion shall eat straw like the ox. I'm afraid it's the C word change, a change of heart for the lamb, a change of stomach for the lion, a heart, the stomach, the center of our character, of our being, of what we think, what we believe, and how we live, a change in, inside. And the New Testament vision is from the angels in Luke 2, the message to the shepherd, peace 
this is this wonderful, isn't it? I mean, this is when Jesus, the God-man, the incarnation, God come in the flesh, not the temple, Jesus is where God meets his people. And the message of the angels, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth among men on whom his favor rests. It's this triangle, isn't it? The eternal triangle, nothing to do with Ingrid Bergman. God at the top and two people, all the people, reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. That's, that's the vision. They have the two things, reconciliation with God and reconciliation man to man. But this is where the hostility is. We, we're not reconciled to each other, it's fractured. And this hostility and hatred is inherited from one generation to another. It's experienced in our lives. It's taught sometimes, and it's terminal. But Jesus isn't like that. In Jesus, Matthew 5, he's on his way. Even now, as he goes perhaps through Samaria, is he on his way to deliver the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. The truth is, they might have heard it, but it's not in the Old Testament. God doesn't tell us to hate enemies. But I tell you, says Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This is not a ticket to get into heaven, this is a demonstration of a change, the change that happened last week when we thought about Nicodemus and the Holy Spirit being born of God's Spirit. And that's what puts the triangle together. Did Jesus live up to his teaching? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is it just the guy, the legionary, with the hammer and the nails? No, Jesus is praying, forgive them. So perhaps it's the centurion, perhaps it's Pilate, perhaps it's even the Sanhedrin, even the crowd, us, that he prays for at that moment. And he's going through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle. It says he had to in verse 4. I don't know whether that's his choice or whether that's his destiny. Could have gone round. Could have gone across the Jordan, up through the right-hand side from where you're sitting, and across into Galilee, further up, three times the journey. But he chose to go through Samaria, and going through Samaria for a devout Jew would be a form of ritual defilement. So Jesus, like Clint Eastwood in High Plains Drifter, walks into town at high noon, sits down by the well, and asks someone to give him a drink. You, verse 9, a Jew, I, a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? Truth is, how can we ask anybody else but Jesus for this kind of drink? But there we are in Sichar, by Old Testament Shechem, little digression into the Old Testament now. This represents more perhaps than anywhere else the gulf between Jews and Samaritans, this hostility. And it's set out in the contrast of the two mountains that Jesus mentioned, where the woman raises the question in verse uh, 20, which mountain? There are two mountains. One is Gerizim, which is by Sichar, by Shechem, 
uh, and the other is Mount Moriah, the temple uh, in Jerusalem. They're two people, they have some things in common, but they're different. They're different in worship, and they're different in practice, and they're different in origin. So they're different. And Samaria, Shechem, Mount Gerizim, verse 20, Jacob's well. This is a place where it's important to the, 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 the Jewish people at the time. Joseph's tomb, that's the land that was bought for Joseph to be buried in. His sons, they're the two sons, Ephraim and uh, Manasseh, the two tribal lands come together just there. And this is the place where at the end of uh, Joshua, he celebrates the, uh, renews the covenant, celebrates the Passover, and he accepts, uh, and the people accept, God's law and rule over their lives. The two mountains, blessings on one, Gerizim curses on the other, Ibal, and that is this acceptance of the law, God's command and control and call on their lives. And he gives them the challenge, you're going to worship all these mixed gods, or are you going to stay with the Lord? As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. But it's the covenant that I want to think about. God makes promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'll bless you. That's the relationship with God. You will be a blessing. That's the relationship with other people. And in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Have I forgotten something? Oh yes, descendants and land. And in a funny sort of way, they're the bits that prove that the last bit is true. If that comes true, is Jacob a blessing? Yeah. Abraham a blessing? Yes. God bless him? Yes. Did he bless other people through, through him? Yes. Did he have descendants? Yes. Did those descendants occupy the land? Yes. So if all those have come true, then maybe in your siege, all nations of the earth be blessed will come true too. And Paul explains that that seed, Galatians 3.16, is Jesus, seed singular, Jesus. In Jesus shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So here we have these two different people in Samaria and in Judea. They've got a temple each, Gerizim, and the temple in Judea. Uh, are, they, um, are they the same people? Well, up to a point, until about 722 BC they were. Um, and, and are they in the land? Well up to a point, until 722 BC they were, but that's really quite a long time ago now. Deuteronomy and most of the Old Testament seems to tell us how to worship God and how to keep the commandments. But of course, we fail to do so, and so God provides a proper sacrifice to remove our sins so that we can. And it spends a lot of time talking about this sacrifice and explaining what it is. It has to be the sacrifice of what you're told, where you're told, when you're told, how you're told, by whom you're told, and the right thing. Lobsters are out. It is not a satisfactory sacrifice. And this is to the God who tells you, not a mixture of gods. And the first of the 10, of the 664, whatever it is, commands, and the battle cry every morning of Israel is the same. Nothing is to take the place of God in our lives. 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God, not a mixture, with all your heart, soul, and strength. God help us. Nothing to take his place in our lives. But it does. And because it does, there's this sacrifice that's available to enable us to worship because the sacrifice removes the sin. You can look it up, Hebrews 9 and 10. Once and for all, Jesus fulfills all those Old Testament sacrifices, all those rules, and he knows that he's going to do that. But who are these Samaritans and Jews that dislike each other so much? It goes back to just after the reign of Solomon. Uh, Ten out of the twelve tribes decide to sorry, go it alone and to be independent and they effectively push off with Jeroboam and they set up, what do they do? They set up their own priests, their own sacrifices, their own places of sacrifice and their own system and ritual. They're still not using lobsters but they have decided to put up golden calves at Dan and Bethel. 18 kings later in 2 Kings 17, God's had enough and he calls up the Assyrians and they take them all away and they never come back. Judah carries on for a bit, rather more than 18 kings later, same thing happens. Judah's taken away into exile, but Judah comes back. I think that's why Jewish people are called Jews, because they're all descended from Judah, not the 12 tribes. And that's it. Judah is still relying on descent from Abraham and being in relationship with God through the Old Testament. The people in Samaria are no longer Jewish people. They've been populated from Assyria and all these other places in 2 Kings 17. From Babylon and Avdur and other places and Seraphim, wherever that is. They're all in Mesopotamia. So they're not able to claim that descent from Abraham promise. And Jesus is among these people. He's just cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, in John 2. The Samaritans have defiled the temple by entering it and spreading bones about about 50 years before. They've defiled the temple in Jerusalem. And that's tit for tat because the Jews had burnt down, destroyed, and defiled the temple on Mount Gerizim in about 100 BC. And Jesus is going to be defiled by being in Samaria, talking to a Samaritan sinning woman, perhaps using even a Samaritan bucket would defile him, technically. But he's going to be a lot more defiled because he's going to be touching and healing the sick, lepers, women who bleed. He's going to be raising the dead, and he's going to hang on a tree. And all those are defiling. That's his plan. He's going to be eating and sharing and talking with weapons-grade sinners like Zacchaeus. He's going to be defiled for us couple of years' time, not on Mount Gerizim, not on the mountain in Jerusalem, but a little mountain just outside called Calvary or Golgotha. And why? What's going to happen? 2 Corinthians 5, 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, reconciled. This is God making his dwelling among men, Jesus, not a building. So he's talking to this woman by the well. Will you give me a drink? How can you ask me? Well, if you knew who I am and the gift, what a change from having to make all those sacrifices year after year, time after time. The gift of God. You'd accept it. No. I would have given you living water. We know what this water is, don't we? Because we've just been reading about Nicodemus last week. We know that this water is not literal water, but this is spiritual. This is God's spirit. And he explains it, not just to the woman who understands it today, but to everybody in the temple, uh, the leaders, the crowd, everybody in the temple in John 7. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified, crucified, resurrected, ascended. So it's not literal water. Oh, well. Um, you haven't got a bucket and the well is deep. In other words, if I have to do it for you, you'll be defiled by my bucket. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, yes, the truth is Jesus is. But what she's saying is, our father Jacob, I'm claiming descent from Abraham. That's my ticket to being in an okay relationship with God. But later she gives that up and she talks about our fathers uh, worshipping on the mountain in verse uh, 19, I think. But to begin with, she comes up with these answers. The truth is, yes, Jesus is greater. But the literal descent argument isn't going to work. And what he's saying really is, it's me. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him, her in this case, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's me. The water I give, the Spirit, will be a spring welling up, not just to you, but to other people as well. Give me the water, she says. But she's still thinking about spiritual water. Sorry, she's still thinking about literal water. So Jesus sits down and he goes through the whole of the Old Testament and explains all the prophets, which he hasn't got because the Samaritans only have the first five books of the Bible. They don't have the rest of the prophets and the writings. So that's what he does. Oh, no, 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 he doesn't. Sorry, that's on the road to Emmaus afterwards to people who are supposed already to know those things and to understand them. No, he says, go and call your husband. Oh, dear. That's awkward because we know that her relationships are not perfect and ultimately satisfying, don't we? She might have been bereaved lots of times over. It's possible. 
She might have been seeking relationship and satisfaction in life with a series of relationships. That's possible. She might be a bad girl. That's possible. But we do know Jesus knows, and he knows that the relationship she has at the moment is at the very best irregular. And her response to that, his knowledge about her, is to see that he's a prophet. She could push off if she wasn't interested, but she stayed and she's, she's engaged with Jesus. She's listening to him. And so she asks the $64,000 question. You have to be at least 64, I think, to remember the $64,000 question. Don't put your hands up because then I'll know. But there was a program called Double Your Money and the biggest, the biggest prize on telly, the biggest prize in the world, $64,000 question. And what, what is it? Which mountain is the right mountain? It's a weird question, isn't it? Is it the temple in Jerusalem? Is it Judaism? Is it pick and mix, Samaritanism? Because when they came and repopulated the land, they brought their own gods. So it's a mixture of gods. Go and call your husband. What the Samaritans are worshipping is not right. Jews haven't got it right either because they haven't yet recognized God amongst them. And Jesus' instruction to her is both a promise and a prophecy. And this is the truth. Believe me, woman, in verse 21. Believe me, woman. Personal, one-to-one. The time is coming, about two years on a hill just outside Jerusalem. And now is, it's me, it's now. Now is the moment of salvation. You, plural, Samaritans and Jews, will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. Jesus knows what he's going to do on the cross, and he knows that the temple in Jerusalem has been completely fulfilled. That's finished. Its task is done. And so the Romans can merrily knock it down in AD 70. But it's Jesus. I am. She responds to this by saying, I know that the Messiah is coming and he'll explain everything to us, but she's just asked him the question that you would have to ask of the Messiah. So maybe she's moved just as the people in Jerusalem did in John 7 from thinking he's a prophet to thinking he's the Messiah. And so he says, uh, she says, uh, when he comes he'll explain everything. And Jesus produces this wonderful, glorious statement to her. I who speak to you am he. I am God. This is, this is the God word, really, and when Jesus used that in the Sanhedrin, he was whisked off to Pilate straight away. So what does she do when she's heard this? It's extraordinary. She leaves her bucket, and then she goes and does exactly what Jesus has told her to do, go and call her husband and come back. So she leaves the jar, and off she goes, not the bucket, the jar, off she goes and she tells the people of the town, more than just her husband, 
she tells the people of the town. And we know, this is her testimony, uh, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She doesn't go off and get an MA in theology first or go on a course. Off she goes, doesn't mess about. Sorry, I don't mean the theology is messing about. But could this be, and this time it's the word is Christ, not Messiah. So they're using the Greek word now, the writer is using the Greek word to show this distinction. This is now for, for everybody, not just for Jews and Samaritans, but everybody. He's used the, the, the Greek word. And it's going to fulfill what Jesus' experience is about to fulfill what Jesus has said. There's going to be worship together. And this is fulfilling the covenant promise to Abraham. Because when Jesus is crucified, the wall in the temple, the wall that says, if you're a foreigner, you go beyond this wall, you're dead. The veil is broken. And now it's life and mercy from God, whoever you are. And this is the message. This woman was an outcast among outcasts, wasn't she? She was there at the will, 12, uh, she was there at the well, 12 o'clock, because that's the time when you have to go on your own. If you want to go with other people and be in fellowship with them, you have to be there first thing in the morning or last thing at night. She's there in the middle of the day, in the hottest time. She's outcast among outcasts. But now suddenly, she's in relationship with God, and surprise, surprise, she's gone off, and she's brought all these other people. And they come back to see what Jesus has got to say. And many believed because of what she said. And then they met Jesus and asked him to stay for another couple of days. Defilement again for him. But for them, they hear what he says and they say to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world, not just Israel, not Samaria, the world. So, 2 Corinthians 5, the bit before, the bit I read before, nearly there. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So, I've got a proposition. The church has been given the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. The church has the Spirit of God welling up for ourselves and for others. So Jesus was in a perfect relationship with God. So should we be? Jesus went to outcasts and formed relationships with them. Should we? Jesus spoke of the transforming power of God's Spirit for us and for outcasts. Should we? Jesus commands and enables us to worship in spirit and truth without a sacrifice, 
without paying a price. So, should we? Jesus told the woman, the woman of fulfillment, the woman who was on the money two years before Peter, X years before Paul, ask for the gift of God. Go, call your husband, and come back. Should we? How do you eat an elephant? One spoonful at a time. One relationship at a time. Difficult to sign that. This lady, an outcast among outcasts, a lion lying down with an ox, changed by her encounter with Jesus in relationship with God and her enemies. That's the change that Jesus wants of us, and that's the change that Jesus, by his Spirit, enables in us. Amen.